Several years ago, I began thinking about uh, this question. Why am I a member of the Lord's Church? Why do I attend services faithfully? Why do I try to stay in good standing uh, with the Lord? And I really wanted to do some deep introspection on that. really wanted to look in and see what, what is the reason why. And, uh, and I, I also asked this question. I said, what would happen? What would happen if I were to leave the Lord? If I were to forsake the Lord, what would be the consequences in this life? I'm not talking about eternally, but just what would be the consequences in this life? And I started to catalog those consequences. And I thought, first thing that's going to happen is there immediately is going to be an estrangement in the relationship with my wife. Because she's a faithful Christian And if I've left the Lord, I'm no longer a faithful Christian. So immediately, I'm going to suffer that colossal loss. We won't have the same closeness. We won't have the same intimacy. We won't have the same uh, togetherness. We won't have this sense of rowing the boat in the same direction. That's going to be broken apart. That's going to come to a screeching halt. That is a major cost of leaving the Lord for me. But, But not only that. I thought some more and I thought, you know, my kids are of an age. They're 12 and the twins are 10 that they know what it means to be faithful, and they know what it means to serve the Lord. And so they would recognize that. And so our relationship would be different. They would lose respect for me, and rightfully so, because they know that Dad is not serving God as he should. And so that relationship is going to suffer uh, irreparable harm at that point in time because of me leaving the Lord. But not only that, I thought about my dad. My dad is still living. He's in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. He's a faithful Christian, and he's one of the closest friends, if not one of the closest friends I have other than my wife. And so that relationship is going to change. It's not going to be the same because he's spiritually minded even more so now than he's ever been. And so we're not going to have the same closeness. We're not going to have the same kind of conversations. We're not going to be able to participate in social activities because I would have left the Lord. But uh, not only that, I thought about my brother. My younger brother is also a faithful uh, Christian, a faithful servant of the Lord. And I would lose that relationship. And my sister-in-law, Emily, and that would go by the wayside. But not only that, I thought about it in terms of people at work. People at work know what I stand for. They know what I'm about. And all of a sudden, that's going to change. I'm going to lose standing with them. I'm going to lose face with them. And so that relationship is going to be uh, irreparably harmed if I leave the Lord. And so a lot of consequences, even in this life. If I leave the Lord. And I guess someone would say, well, that, that's a good thing, Kevin. Because all of those different things, all those different pressure points, that acts as a deterrent against you leaving the Lord. And perhaps there's some truth to that, but, but I would suggest to you it's a double-edged sword. And this is what I mean by that. Could it be? Could it be that the reason why I'm so-called faithful is because I recognize all of those cost of leaving the Lord and could it be that essentially what I've done is I'm not here because I love the Lord well my heart mind and soul but I'm here because like every human being I'm a social creature I want social companionship and this is my network this is my social club could it be that I know the rules I know how to stay in good standing I know how to stay out of standing I know what to say. I know how to walk. I know how to talk to stay in this social group. In fact, if I think about it, many of the friends I have are in the Lord's church. 
Could it be that the reason why I'm the man that I'm supposed to be, at least externally, is just to keep good relations with my wife, good relations with my brother, good relations with my children, good relations with my father? Could it be that I'm just going through the motions because this is my social club and I want to stay in with them? And if that's the case, folks, I'm going to be in for a rude awakening on Judgment Day because that just will not cut it. And so it got me thinking about this fundamental question, which will be the sermon title tonight or this afternoon. Are you doing the right things for the right reasons? Are you doing the right things for the right reasons? Because as I began to study this question more and more, I was impressed with just how many times God tells us through his word that it's just not enough to do the right thing. But God also demands that we do those right things with the right motivations, with the right heart, with the right disposition, with the right purpose, with the right rationale. And so the Lord, you can't just check off a list. He also says, I want your heart. I want you doing these things for the right reasons. And it, that, that scared me. It scared me because I thought it's hard enough to do all these different things. And yet here's another level of compliance that God is saying, you can't just be satisfied that you're doing them. You can't just be satisfied that all the members of your congregation think that you're doing them. You can't just be satisfied that the elders think that you're doing them. You can't be satisfied that even your own wife thinks you're doing them. You've got to, in your heart, be fully committed and doing these things for the right motivations. And if you don't do these things for the right motivations, you will lose your soul. Let that sink in for a little while. (laughs) That tells you what we're dealing with here. we got to get real serious about this thing. Are you doing the right things for the right reasons? Let me give you a few points to think about. Are you doing the right things for the right reasons in evangelism? Are you doing the right things for the right reasons in evangelism? And certainly we know, we've established this over and over again for God's word, that we have an obligation, all of us, not just the preachers, not just the deacons, not just the elders, all of us have an obligation to teach and to preach the gospel, to share the gospel, to share it with our friends, to share it with our coworkers, to share it with uh, folks in our neighborhood. But here's my question. Are we doing that for the right reasons? Let me give you an illustration that may bring out the point. When I was in college... I remember um, getting up early in the morning, which is not necessarily a strong suit of mine, but uh, getting up early in the morning, one of those 8 o'clock classes, and uh, I got up, went to the University of Tennessee, and uh, was going out to Clement Hall, that's where I stayed, went down to the courtyard, and I saw at the foot of the bridge that goes over uh, Cumberland, I saw a couple of gentlemen with suits and ties. And that looked out of place. It's college campus, of course. And so that's something weird about that. What's, what's going on? And so as I got closer, as I'm getting ready to go over the bridge, I noticed that they were handing out Bibles, Gideon's Bibles. And uh, there was a thought that I need to engage these folks. But at that point, I had to get to class. And so I was like, okay, I'll come back. We'll get that. And so I went to my class and uh, almost sprinted back afterwards and went up to my dorm room and got my sword and went down to those gentlemen and proceeded to slice and dice them. I knew the questions that they could not answer. I knew how to trip them up, and I had a field day with it. That's not evangelism for the proper reason. That's pride. That's hubris. That's the party spirit. That's a desire just to, I can make you look bad. That's not 
having the right heart when it comes to teaching others. In fact, if you look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, we are told what the right heart is when we teach other people. Ephesians, the fourth chapter and the 15th verse. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15. After God has made the point through Paul that he has given to us gifts apostles and evangelists and teachers and pastors, all for the equipping of the body, equipping of the saints, so they can go out and do the ministry that God has for them. And we're supposed to grow. And as we grow, we're supposed to have, verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ. How do we speak the truth? Why do we speak the truth? Why do we share the gospel? Why do we challenge people when they teach false doctrine? Why do we correct folks when we see things that are not in accordance with God's word? It's not because of pride. It's not to belittle people. It's not because I want to vindicate my upbringing and vindicate my parents and the party spirit. My team's right. Your team's wrong. It's out of love. We're concerned about the souls of men. We love these people. We don't want anybody to be misguided. We don't want anybody to be misled. We don't want anybody to miss heaven. We don't want anybody to go to hell. And so what do we do? We teach out of love. And I'm telling you, folks, when you have that motivation, it's different how you speak. When you speak to somebody out of love, it's different. When you teach to somebody out of love, it's different. When you preach the gospel out of love, it's different. We're about persuasion because we love and we care about people. Look at what we see from Jesus in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 34. Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 34. Are you doing the right things for the right reasons in evangelism? Are you doing the right things for the right reasons in evangelism? Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 34. Mark the 6th chapter, verses 30 through 34. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus, told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. Now listen to verse 34. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them, stop right there. And if I were to tell you that this incident is the feeding of the 5,000, and I've just read to you that Jesus saw these people, and Jesus had compassion, and you would just say naturally, well, he had compassion on them because they're hungry, and they need food, and that's why we're going to have that great miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. But if you were to say that, you'd be wrong. Keep reading verse 34. Why did Jesus Have compassion for them. Because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. What got the Lord's attention first? What was on the Lord's mind first? What caused the Lord to have a compassionate response was these people's ignorance. And he began to teach them based on that. He wasn't concerned as much about empty bellies. He was concerned about empty souls. He saw people, he said, these are people like sheep without a shepherd. And that's a pathetic sight. Can't do anything. Can't defend themselves. Can't get to the food they need. Can't get to the water they need. These people are wandering aimlessly. They need teaching. Notice the connection between the compassion that was felt in looking at their condition and the teaching that was done. You see that? It was the compassion that motivated the teaching. Here's a question. 
when you see lost people, when you hear lost souls, how do you respond? Do you have compassion? And does that compassion compel you to teach? I wonder about it sometimes. I wonder about some of the comments I hear sometimes in, in Bible study. My wife, who came out of denominationalism late in life, is really good about detecting this. And she has pointed out sometimes that there have been some things said in classes that really make you wonder how much compassion we have for the lost. Things we say about people in denominations. Ridicule. Make fun. I mean, to hear us tell it, what they believe, no rational thinking person would ever believe that. Insincere. Don't care about truth. Wait a minute, folks. I read in my Bible, Acts 23, 1, that Paul says, I have lived in all sincerity until this day. Wait a minute, that's a guy who was persecuting the church. Yep. And he was sincere while he did it. We, we don't have to characterize people's motivations. We don't have to make, we shouldn't make fun. It's not a laughing matter when people are caught up in denominationalism. That's not funny. Because it's going to lead to destruction of souls. There's nothing funny about that. Rather, we need to have compassion. Or maybe our response is like this. There they go again. You know how, man, they ain't never going to come out of that. Mother was involved in that. Father was involved in that. Grandfather, they steeped in that stuff. Man, it's as wrong as they could be. And not an ounce of compassion in that observation. Not an ounce of compassion. This skepticism as to whether, they, man, don't even need to bother. I remember talking to a lady about a congregation. They were in a community, and the congregation was shrinking. And I just asked, hey, uh, y'all doing anything to try to teach in the community around the congregation? She said, ah, we tried that years ago, man. They're too caught up to dominate. They're not going to change. They're just, whoa, wait a minute. Have you heard of the power of the word of God? <laughs> you don't believe in that power? You've given up? These souls are not worth it. Just write them off. That's not what I see in Mark 6, 30, 34. I see the Lord having compassion. I see the Lord being concerned. I see the Lord loving the souls of men. And I see on the basis of that concern, that compassion, that love, I see the Lord teaching. The question is, is Kevin Clark doing the same thing? What do we do when we see people? We hear people that don't know the truth. What do we do when we see people who are caught up in, in false doctrine? Do we care? Do we care enough to say something? I mean, oh, yeah, it's embarrassing. It's awkward. I don't know. Hey, folks, the concern, she needs to outweigh all that. I'm concerned about this person. We'll deal with the embarrassment later. Let's deal right now with a lost soul that needs some information that you have. That's why we need to be like the Apostle Paul. Look over in Acts chapter 17. I like the Apostle Paul. There's a brother that understood this point. Are you doing the right things for the right reasons in evangelism? Are you doing the right things for the right reasons in evangelism? Acts 17, 16 through 17. Acts 17, 16 through 17. The Bible says, Now while Paul waited for them, his traveling companions, Silas and Timothy, now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his, listen to this, his spirit was provoked within him. What got Paul worked up? When he saw that the city was given over to idols, so what did Paul do about it? Verse 17. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Here's the apostle Paul. He's waiting on his traveling companions. He's waiting on Silas and Timothy. And he just happened to look around in Athens and seeing all of these idols. This city is given over to idolatry. And he could have said, well, 
man, where's Silas and Timothy? Man, we got to get out of here. Come on. Yeah, these people are steeped in our doubt. They're never going to change. But Silas and Timothy, where, where are you guys at? No, 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 no. His spirit was provoked within him. It bothered him to see all this idolatry. It bothered him to see so many people ignorant of the true God. It bothered him to see this false doctrine that's been going on here. And what does she do? He opens his mouth. <laughs> Just like the Lord, compassion led to teaching. Being provoked led to what? Teaching. And of course, I'm impressed that he goes into the synagogues and he uh, teaches the truth to the Gentile worshipers and the Jews there. And you know, that would make sense. That's a place where religious people gather. But I tell you what really gets my attention was that second part of what Paul did because he was provoked uh, by seeing the idolatry. He went to the marketplace. The marketplace? Really, Paul? I mean, I understand the synagogue. Now, you've got religious people there, but the marketplace. Hey, folks are going there to buy and sell goods. They're going there to engage in commerce. That's economics. Nobody there want to hear about the gospel. Nobody there is interested in religious things, or if they are, not at that time. They're there to buy and sell, to trade goods. But you know what? Paul was in that marketplace, and Paul was teaching to whomever would listen to him. Why? Because his spirit was provoked within him. Why? Because he had compassion on lost souls. Why? Because he cared about the spiritual welfare of those people. Now, see, that's the kind of thing. When you have that kind of concern for souls, you ain't worried about, excuse me, bad English. You're not worried about uh, embarrassment. You're not worried about whether this is supposed to be the ideal place for teaching. <laughs> you just teach. You just share the gospel. And, and Paul tells you what his mindset is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. This is why Paul would teach in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers. This is why Paul would go to uh, the marketplace and teach. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11 gives you the rationale. What's going through Paul's mind? What motivates him? 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 9 through 11. Therefore, we make it our aim whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now listen to verse 11. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well-known to God, and I also trust are well-known in your consciences. Paul says, I know some things. I know there's coming a judgment day. And I know on judgment day that every single one of us is going to have to give account for what we've done in the body, whether that be good or whether it be bad. But he said, I know something else. I know the terror of the Lord. I know hellfire for those who are outside of Christ. And he says, on the basis of that knowledge, on the basis of that understanding, I persuade men. I don't want anybody to go to hell. He said, I'm out there encouraging, exhorting, reasoning, whatever I can do. Because what lies ahead is so horrific, is so horrible, is so terrible. I don't want anybody to go there. I wonder, I wonder if we were to wake up every day and spend just a few moments thinking about the horrors of hell, how much more effective we would be in teaching. Paul says, I know what lies ahead for those outside of Christ. And I'm going to do whatever I can to persuade people not to go there. You see that, folks? That's the right reason we care about the souls of men. If we're not teaching, either we don't believe that their souls are in jeopardy or we don't love men, either one will condemn our souls. 
We need to be teaching because there are dire circumstances here. This is to this is this is not even life. This is spiritual life and death. We understand the significance of life and death, but we're talking about eternity here. And we are not going to share the gospel because we might lose a friend or two. We might lose a job opportunity. We might lose some respect. It might get awkward. The conversation may be difficult to navigate. Really? Those things are more important than somebody's eternal destiny? And I'm talking to me as much as anybody because I need this. I've had too many of these days where you go and you hear something being said around you. You know it's wrong for me. I call it my false alarm or false doctrine detector. It goes off in the pit of my stomach. False doctrine. But, but so many times it goes off and I don't say anything. And I know that I should. And it's weighing on my mind as I'm driving home. I'm thinking about it. Got to go to bed. Before you go to bed, look in the mirror. And you got to think. You were a coward. You knew the truth. You knew that what they said was wrong. And you never uttered a word. And I've had too many of those nights. Too many. It's easy to be bold up here. You guys generally believe what, what the Bible teaches. That's easy. But it's much harder when you're the only Christian in the group, isn't it? It's much harder when it's at work. It's much harder maybe at the family reunion. It's much harder at a place where we don't talk about those things now. But if you care about lost souls, you talk about it. What's the convenient time? We convince ourselves there's got to be a convenient time. When you teach is when you you call somebody and get a Bible study set up and we come over in a certain time and that's when we teach. And nowhere, no, no. I mean, that's good. We need to do that. That's necessary. It's not sufficient. What you see with Jesus, what you see with the apostles, what you see with the apostle Paul is people took advantage of opportunities as they were presented to themselves. Does the marketplace sound like a Bible study that's been set up for that reason? No. We've got to take advantage of those opportunities and open our eyes to them and quit cowering in fear. Say what needs to be said. We've got the truth. We've got the truth. What do you worry? You think somebody's going to come up with an argument that's going to overcome truth? <laughs> How do you do that? You got the truth. And so I don't know what to say. Open the Bible. Open the Bible. Some of the best teaching I've ever done is when I got out of the way, I shut up, and I just simply said, read. <laughs> I was talking to a lady when I was in school, and uh, she uh, was caught up in Catholicism. And uh, she would tell me when she'd go to the priest what the priest would say on certain topics. And she said, well, the priest said this. And I said, okay, get your Bible out there. Let's read over here. And she would read that. She's like, hmm, that's not what the priest said. Okay, and she'd talk about something else. I was like, I'll tell you what. Read this over here. See what you think. She read that. That's not what my priest said. And we just kept going on. And finally, she was like, I don't know about that priest. <laughs> but but I, didn't, I didn't have to say anything. I just directed her to the word of God. Let her read. She can read for herself. She can be convicted by the word. She can see the difference between what he's saying and what God is saying. And that's what I'm saying. We don't ever need to back down from that because of fear that I'm not smart enough and I'm not quick-witted enough and I'm not charming enough and I'm not debated enough and I'm not educated enough. What? Forget all that. Do you know the Word of God? That's all you need to know. That's all you need to know. Are we doing the right things for the right reasons in evangelism? Let me give you a second point. Second point is this. Are we giving back to the Lord for the right reasons? Are we giving back to the Lord for the right reasons. We know that we have an obligation to do that from passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. Are you giving back to the Lord for the right reasons? The Bible says this. But this I say, 
He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one, listen to verse 7, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Does it matter how I give when the collection plate comes by my row? Does it matter how I put that check in there? Does it matter how I put that money in there? Is, is it okay for me to say, ah, man, I really don't want to, oh, yeah, okay. Well, everybody's looking, i got to do something. Okay, that, that's fine. Is that okay? Is it okay to say, uh, I really don't want to give, but I know it says you're supposed to give on the first day of the week, and so, okay, I'll put the money. doesn't matter. Because after all, the money's there, right? The money can be used. The money can be used for good. There's a lot of good. So ultimately, who cares how I give it? The bottom line is, did I give and can you use the money for good? No, because God says, not grudgingly. And even, now think about this. This is kind of interesting. Not of necessity. Now, think about this for a second. It's really interesting. So if I give simply because God told me to give, Because I have to comply, God says, not enough. (laughs) Not enough. You've got to want to give. You've got to give voluntarily. You've got to give cheerfully. I mean, this is really getting, this is tough, isn't it? That we've got to work, I mean, why are we giving? But yet, when you step back just a little bit, it makes all the sense in the world. When we look at passages like Acts 17, and notice some of the comments that Paul makes about Jehovah God to the Athenians to try to introduce them to the true God. And I think when we think about these comments, then we're going to understand why the Lord says, hey, it's not enough for you to do it just because I commanded it. You need to want to do it. Uh, Acts 17, and let's look at verse 25. And remember, Paul is introducing these people to the true God. They don't know anything about the true God. In fact, they got an altar to the unknown God. And Paul very skillfully says, let me tell you about that God. And so he tells them about that God, verse 25, he says, Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell in all the face of the earth, has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring." So let's let that sink in a little bit. Paul is introducing these people to the true God. He says, now this is a God who gives us life, breath, and all things. Everything we have in this existence, he said, is a gift from this God. He goes on to say, this is the God in whom we live and in whom we breathe and whom we move. You think about everything you have, everything you are, is because God allowed it to be so. He gave it to you. It's a gift. Now, if you think about it through that lens, and then we think about giving back to the Lord, just a portion of the many, many blessings God has showered upon you, I think it makes sense why, yeah, we need to be doing that because we want to do it. How dare we do so grudgingly? 
How dare we do so out of necessity? You wouldn't have anything, including your very life and existence, but for God, and yet you're going to be stingy with God? Come on. Come on. Who do we think we are? We ought to be so appreciative that we can't wait to give. We're excited to give. Knowing that God doesn't need anything, but we're trying to show in our small way how much we're thankful for all the things God has done for us. That old song, count your many blessings, name them one by one. You ever done that? You ever just start listing all the things that God has done for you, and you ain't going to get it done in this life. But just this exercise is good to remind us how much we owe God. And when we begin to think about it that way, The next time the collection plate comes, I don't think anybody's going to have a problem with giving, right? The way we should. Because we love God. And we're thankful to God. We're grateful to God. And to be given an opportunity to give back to Him, knowing that the funds that I give are going to be used to help spread the gospel to other lost souls, which is the whole point of what we're doing, seeking and saving that which is lost, or knowing that the funds that we give are going to be used to help needy saints so that they won't be distracted by financial problems and they can keep their focus on the Lord and go into heaven. That's a wonderful way to spend your funds, right? I mean, when it comes to my charitable giving, I really analyze and I really scrutinize. and What's my money going to? What y'all doing with that money? How much is that money going for administration? How much of that money is going for what I really want it to go to? But we know. We know what the money we give is going to. And there couldn't be a worthier cause on the face of this earth than to spread the gospel and to relieve needy saints. And so why are we not giving the way we should? Are you doing the right things for the right reasons when it comes to giving back to the Lord? Let me give you a third point. Are you doing the right things for the right reasons when it comes to partaking of the Lord's Supper? Are you doing the right things for the right reasons when it comes to partaking of the Lord's Supper? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 34. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 34. Are you doing the right things for the right reasons in partaking of the Lord's Supper? 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 34. The Bible says this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Listen to this. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. This do as often as you drink it. Listen. In remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, what do we do? You proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Verse 27. Therefore... Whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord, listen to this, in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man what? Examine himself. And what? So in that manner, that way. So let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in what? In an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. Did you notice how many times the Lord specified not just partaking of the Lord's Supper, but how you do it. In remembrance of me. In remembrance of me. You proclaim the Lord's death. Till he comes. Don't drink and eat in an unworthy manner. 
Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat. You see that? It's important what we're thinking about as we partake of the Lord's Supper. And friends, I tell you, that takes discipline. That takes control. That takes intent. Because it's a terrible thing, our ability. We can do things without thinking about what we're doing, can't we? Uh, I, I've got a route that I go uh, to work. I get on 459, I-459, hit I-65, go north. That's what I do Monday through Friday a lot of times. Sometimes I take some back roads. But I've noticed sometimes on Saturdays, Daddy's Day, got the kids, and we just happen to be on 459, and I'm not paying attention to what I'm doing. Next thing I know, I'm going 65 north downtown. And the kids are like, what are we doing? <laughs> oh, so I wasn't thinking. Now, I was awake. I was conscious. But I was distracted. I'm thinking about, so I'm not thinking about what I'm doing. We can do that in worship, unfortunately. We can sing songs, not think a word about the lyrics that we're singing. Now, I have no idea what we just sung. Uh, we can bow our heads in prayer and have our minds 6,000 miles away from here, not even thinking about what's being said. And yes, unfortunately, we can partake of the Lord's Supper and not think one iota about the sacrifice that Jesus made. Not thinking about him, not examining ourselves, not eating in a worthy manner. And that's dangerous stuff, folks, as Paul talks about in this series of passages. We need to make sure that our minds are centered on Christ. And let me say this. Let me say this. I appreciate Brother Stevenson and his comments this morning at the table. Let me say why. I appreciate the volume, (laughs) the quantity. You know, Acts 27 says that's really why we come together on the first day of the week. That's really the main thing, right? But we've kind of gotten backwards, and we think the main thing sometimes is the preaching, or the main thing is the singing, or the main thing is the praying, and that's all required, and that's all good. But, but they came together the first day of the week to break bread, to partake of the Lord's Supper, Acts 27. And sometimes we just rush through it, like, oh, let's get to the preaching. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Take some time to remember the Lord's death. And Brother Stevenson did that. I appreciate the comments. Uh, there was a brother at Oak Mountain. He took a lot of time reading passages and talking. I told him, I said, man, I appreciate so much you taking time at the table because that's why we come together. Again, I'm no disrespect to any other aspect of our worship. But let's don't disrespect the Lord's death. <laughs> when that's what the Lord has told us, we need to remember. And I want you to, maybe there are things you can do. I, I like to kind of go back in time myself and try to visualize what, what was it like for Jesus to be on the cross. And, and I know there, sometimes there are movies we can use to kind of help us visualize. Uh, for me, and it's not an endorsement of the movie because I know it's got some inaccurate things, but The Passion of the Christ uh, is pretty brutal in how it depicts the crucifixion of Jesus. And I'll say this, so brutal that I've talked to some sisters, they're like, I, I can't watch it. And I understand that. But for me, that's one of the images I try to pull to mind when I'm partaking of the Lord's Supper, to get myself in the frame of mind, to understand as much as I can uh, on this side of the cross what the Lord went through based on what's revealed in Scripture. But the thing is, we've got to remember Him. It matters. It's not, well, I'm just here. I'm just here. And I wonder about the folks who, and you, maybe you all have some folks like this, who, who show up, they take the Lord's Supper, it's a 100-yard dash to the parking lot. And I just have to wonder sometimes. First of all, forget about, hey, there's a lot more going on here as you can encourage the saints in. But I wonder, what frame of mind do you have when you're supposed to be thinking about the Lord's death, you're supposed to be remembering Him, you're supposed to be examining yourselves, and the minute that's over, you get out. I don't know. It'd be hard for me to pull that off. 
We need to take our time and think about what we're doing. Every single time. I know we, you, oh, we do it every week, Kevin. That's okay. We need to remember it every week. We need to be remembered more than that as far as in our personal lives. But as far as, as a worship, an act of worship, it's once a week. And if the Lord set that up, now think about this for a second. Who knows the human mind better than anybody? It's God who made it. So if God, knowing our human minds, knowing our limitations, knowing what we can and cannot do, he says, now remember this on the first day of the week. Well, it seems to me that it's eminently possible for us to take it seriously and remember him and do what he wants us to do and do it in the way he wants to do us every single week. Is anybody going to tell the creator of the universe, you got it wrong about the human mind? I'm not. (laughs) I'm not going to be the one telling God that. I'm going to be about the business of getting my mind focused. And we do that, folks, in our jobs. We do that in, in raising kids. We do that in different points in our life. So don't tell me you don't know how to focus your life. I mean, there's some times in my job, I better be focused on one thing and one thing alone. Because otherwise, malpractice insurance is going to ha- get some notice about me. I don't want that to happen. So we know how to focus. We just got to be disciplined. When we come to the Lord's house, we're coming to glorify God. We're thinking about spiritual things. We're not thinking about uh, where we're going to go get something to eat. And we're not thinking about the Super Bowl. And we're not thinking about the ball games. And we're not thinking about the kids' afternoon basketball. No, we're thinking about the Lord. And we've got to discipline ourselves. Why? Because it matters how we do it. Are you doing the right things for the right reasons when it comes to partaking the Lord's Supper? Let me give you a fourth point. The lesson be yours. Are you doing the right things for the right reasons when it comes to your charitable giving? Are you doing the right things for the right reasons when it comes to your charitable giving? Look with me to 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. Are you doing the right things for the right reasons when it comes to your charitable giving? 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. The Bible says this. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, So that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Verse 3. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Paul. Back up. If I've got a gentleman who has a lot of goods in life, and that gentleman sells all those goods... And takes the proceeds from that sale and gives it to the poor to provide them with the things that they so desperately need. That's got to be a wondrous thing. That's got to be wonderful. All of us would say, look at this good Christian guy. Look at this Christian man. Look at his love. Look at." Uh, he says, why did he do it? Why did he do it? What difference does it make why he did it? The bottom line is the poor got help. They got their needs relieved. And this is a wonderful thing. Glorify God. Why did he do it? Because the Bible says if he did not do it out of love, it profits him nothing. Now understand, hey, they can be helped. And the poor have their needs relieved. But he's talking about the soul of the man doing the giving. He says, as for him, worthless. Because he didn't do it for the right reason. He's supposed to do it out of love. What about us? First of all, are we even doing any charitable giving? As individuals, we know that we have an obligation to do good unto all, especially unto the household of faith, Galatians 6.10. We do know that, right? And when you do that giving, why do you give? 
Do you give because you have a guilty conscience? Do you give because you want to run up and tell somebody, hey, look what I did. I helped this guy out. Or do you give because you care about people? You hurt when they hurt. When they have needs and you have the capacity to meet those needs, you're motivated to do something. You can't help it. You just you feel for those people. Look what Jesus says about this in Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Are you doing the right things for the right reasons in your charitable giving? Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Matthew the 6th chapter, verses 1 through 4. The Bible says, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Surely I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Jesus says it matters why you give. It matters why you do benevolence. It matters why you do charitable deeds. It matters why you try to help other people. He said, don't be like the, the hypocrites. And they do something good and they're, look what I did. Am I not wonderful? He says, you know, those folks, the only war they're going to get is the praise from men that they're seeking. That's it. As far as God is concerned, no praise. He says, no, no, no. When you do something charitable for somebody else, don't know don't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. We've got to be careful about this. And, and let me say something here. Last time I checked, there's not a social media exception to Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Think about that a little bit. Because I've seen some folks that uh, seem to be doing a lot of trumpeting about what they're doing on social media. I'm doing this and I'm doing that. In fact, I've even heard of a church that... Uh, they really take a lot of pride in the fact that they're doing so many works and it's prominently featured on the website and that's the attraction. Come to us because we're active in the community and we're doing this and we're doing that. And I remember, wait a minute, folks. The Lord says, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. It's the Lord that's the draw. You don't come to a church because, hey, look at us. We're active. We're doing a lot of stuff. You come to church because the Lord draws you. You hear what I'm saying? There are no exceptions to that. We need to be careful about that. The attaboy, the girl. that's what you're looking for? The Lord says, that's all you get. You're not getting anything from me. We do things because we love God and we love our neighbor as ourselves. That's it. Matthew 22, 37 through 40, Jesus says you could summarize the whole old law and the prophets with those two principles. Love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what ought to motivate us in doing our giving. There was a brother in Atlanta years ago who lost his job he was an engineer and he lost his job and was in need of help just to make the rent and uh, he's one of those brothers that uh, loved to talk don't say anything brother Tom loved to talk he was the last person in the building always closing it down and like most of us we have our preferred places to sit right you know you have a place you've always sat and if somebody else sits there a visitor you kind of give them the sly and then go on about your business but, but he had a place that he sat. Everybody knew where he sat. And so he left his Bible there, but he's going about and talking to people and having a good time. And then finally, as he comes back to his seat, to his Bible, there's an envelope there. And that envelope is stuffed full of cash. And there's no name on it. No name on it. 
It wasn't terribly long ago that I asked this brother. I said, brother, I remember this happening years ago. Did you ever find out who gave that money? He said, no. To this day, I don't know who gave it. But that was a brother or sister who understood Matthew 6, 1 through 4, did they not? They're just giving because they want to relieve the needs. They're not looking for an attaboy, an girl, and they're not looking for credit. They're just looking to help somebody out. And that's how we are to do our charitable deeds. Are you doing the right things for the right reasons when it comes to your charitable giving? And there are many other things we could talk about along the same vein, uh, but we'll bring it to a close at this time. But I do want you to examine yourself. I love that, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves as to whether you be in the faith. But look at yourself. I tell people, if you want to know about you, <laughs> if you want to know about you, the best source of information about who you really are, not who you think you are, not who your mama thinks you are, who you really are, the Bible doesn't. Because it reveals the thoughts and the intents of the heart, according to Hebrews 4.12. If you read the Bible with an open mind and you look at your life, and it'll tell you about yourself. And let me be the first to confess, there's some times I've read this Bible and I've examined myself and I don't like what it tells me about me. But that's when I need to change. That's when I need to repent. I needed to know that. And so if you find that on any of these things, that you're not doing the right things for the right reasons, if you're not doing the right things for the right reasons in evangelism, or you're not doing the right things for the right reasons in giving back to the Lord. Or you're not doing the right things for the right reasons in partaking of the Lord's Supper. Or you're not doing the right things for the right reasons in your charitable giving. If you find in any of these things or any other aspect of your service to God, may I ask you to repent. And do so now before it's everlasting too late. The Lord cares why we do what we do. And so that's why, you know, when I was younger, I spent so much time on commands. And I kind of thought about my service to God is getting these commands. I don't do this and do that. And I've grown a lot since then. And I realize it's this. It's the heart. And that doesn't mean that the thou shalt nots and the thou shalt are not important. They are. But you fix this first. And then those just flow naturally from that. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 15, it's from the heart all these sins come from. So if we've got sin in our lives, it's a heart problem. Fix the heart, then everything flows with it. And that's how we get to the right reasons. Spend some time with God's Word. Spend some time talking to God in prayer. Spend some time around God's people encouraging one another. Spend some time trying to meet the needs of those around you, Christian and non-Christian alike. And become more spiritually minded. And you'll get it. (laughs) You'll get it. And you'll be doing the right things for the right reasons. And that way bring glory to God and purchase salvation for yourself on God's terms. If anyone's here not a Christian, we'll encourage you to become one. And we want to encourage you to take advantage of that now. Don't sit in this service having heard invitation after invitation and do nothing about it. Because, as we said, we don't know when we're going to die. And we don't know when the Lord's coming. And you can't say, well, I was about to. I was getting ready. Next week, a couple, I was going to. You're You're not guaranteed that. I had an uncle that my dad tried as hard as he could to present the gospel to him. Tried to get him interested in spiritual things. And his response was, you know, I'm a young man. I'm working in corporate America. It's difficult. I'm climbing the ladder. I hear what you're saying. It's probably right. But let let me go ahead and get this corporation thing done. Let me go as far as I can get. And and when I get older and when I retire, I've got a lot of time. I can kind of investigate these things. And and maybe then I can get serious about uh, the Lord. My uncle died at 37. He never got to retirement. 
but he had opportunities. And he turned up his nose at him. And he's going to have to answer for that on Judgment Day. Don't fall into the same trap. If you're not a Christian, why would you walk out of this assembly without doing something about it today? You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if you're going to get another chance. You are. You know, we talk about we shouldn't gamble, and we shouldn't. That's the biggest gamble. You're gambling with your soul. You're gambling that, well, I'm going to get another day. You don't know that. You may not get any more time. If you don't get any more time, you have nobody to blame but yourself. Because you've heard the gospel. You've heard the message. We need to hear the gospel message. We need to believe what is heard. We need to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We need to repent of our former way of life. And yes, we need to be baptized for the mission of our sins. And that's not sprinkling, that's not pouring. And I don't have to cite Alexander Campbell or Thomas Campbell or Barton W. Stone, all fine gentlemen, but I'm going to cite the Bible. Because the Bible tells me that to be biblically baptized means to be immersed. And when you are immersed in that water, you contact the blood of Jesus Christ, washes us away all the sins all the guilty conscience, and you are made a fit vessel for God to do His work. And that's just a wonderful existence, folks. I'm telling you, the most fulfilling things I've ever done have been things done in the service of God. That's the life we're meant to have. The Creator knows that. That's what's best for us. Deuteronomy 6.24 says, The commandments of the Lord are for our good always. Don't think God is just arbitrarily laying down commands. Let's see what they do with this. No! The things that He's told us to do are the best life. Godliness has the life, our promise of the life that now is and the life that is to come, 1 Timothy 4.8. We miss that sometimes. We portray Christianity as this terrible burden and the shackles and we just go through life and there's grim and there's no joy, but get to heaven, everything's wonderful. That's not 1 Timothy 4.8 at all. 1 Timothy 4.8 says the best life to be lived is the life lived in accordance with God's will. I didn't say it was going to be easy all the time. I didn't say it was always going to be uh, joyful from the standpoint of there's not going to be tears and sorrow. But it is the best life to be lived. To live life in accordance with this. Why are you waiting? Why are you waiting? You have an opportunity to make your soul right tonight or this afternoon. If anyone is subject to the invitation, we ask you to come forward as we stand.